If you have a Bible with you this morning, we're going to go back to that very same chapter we just had read for us, Acts chapter 12. If you don't have a physical Bible with you, you can always get out a Bible app on your phone. If you see a black Bible in the pew rack in front of you, we'll be on page 893. If you haven't been here for the past couple of weeks, we're three weeks into a new sermon series called Because He Lives. It's all about answering the question, what is true right now because Jesus is alive right now? And two weeks ago, we saw that because Jesus lives, we can press on. Christ gives us the power to endure, to push through obstacles, and if we can put those words on the screen, um, this, this truth is so important. Even when we're exhausted, even when we have weak willpower, Jesus helps us to keep going, to strive toward what is ahead, just like the Apostle Paul says. Because he lives, we can press on. Can we put those words up on the screen? Perfect. Now, last week, we saw that because Jesus lives, we can please God. As Christians, we're not doomed to failure all the time. We're empowered to faithfulness. God is not some kind of unjust judge who can only see our faults and ignores all the good we do. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. Because He lives, we can please God. God can look at our whole church and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now, so far we focused only on what Christ does through us or in us, but now we're going to talk about what Christ does in our midst. Now, before we go any further, I just want to say something to anyone who is here or watching online who isn't a Christian or doesn't really believe in God or Jesus. I want you to know this sermon may be hard to hear. If you think religious people are superstitious or naive, uh, today's sermon might be one of those days that confirms your every suspicion because we're talking about miracles. But I'm going to ask you a favor whether you're in person or watching online today in the same way that you wish religious people would just be more critical of their own assumptions, I'm going to ask the same of you. I want you to suspend any doubts you have about the supernatural, and just for 20 minutes, be open to this story as if it actually happened. So, I want to give you some background, I give you a timeline so you can picture kind of when these events are happening, and I think you can be open to this timeline. Around 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth was a Jewish rabbi and a carpenter, and he was crucified. Now, you may think he's still dead in a tomb somewhere, but we can at least agree he got executed by the Romans. Now, a couple years later, there was a Pharisee, another Jew, named Saul of Tarsus, who believed that all these people who, were, who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, that he thought that they were a real problem for the people of Israel. And so he actually went to a city called Damascus to try and stamp out these new Christians. But on that road to Damascus, he has this incredible vision that he talks about in his letters. And he believed that he had seen Jesus. 
the living Jesus, not an, an apparition. He wasn't grieving or hallucinating. He believed completely that he saw Jesus alive. And so he stopped persecuting Christians and actually started converting people to his faith. He started traveling all over the world to tell people Jesus is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. He had this entire conversion experience on the road to Damascus. Three years after that vision, there was another Jewish fisherman named Simon Peter who claimed that he had a vision from God. And this time, that vision convinced him that he and the rest of the Jews in his movement needed to accept Gentiles, non-Jews, into their movement. Because at this point, what we call Christianity was primarily Jews who believed Jesus was the Messiah. There wasn't a clear separation between Judaism and Christianity. There were basically Jews who thought Jesus was the Messiah and Jews who did not think Jesus was the Messiah. And all the Jews who believed in Jesus as the Messiah, they still went to the synagogue on Sabbath, and they still went to the same Jewish festivals. And so there started to be all these tensions between these fellow Jews, and it really started heating up in 40 AD. This is when a guy named Herod Agrippa I came to power, and he exploited this division between these two groups of Jews. He wanted to win the favor of the Jews who did not believe in Jesus, so he started persecuting Christians. That's the very first verse in this chapter we're looking at today. I'll read this out loud for us. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church. His whole intention, he was not pursuing justice at all. He is persecuting them. He wants the approval of the influential Jewish leaders who thought this way was corrupt. And in verse 2, Herod heats up the persecution. We read that he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And Herod sees that this is met with a lot of approval among the Jews, and so he proceeds to seize Peter also. Okay, this is what you need to know about church history. Whenever Christians are persecuted by their governments, the oppressors always go after the leaders. They think, we can put down a lot of sheep just by putting down one shepherd. Their logic is very evil, but it's correct. Churches tend to scatter and, and fall apart without leadership. And so Herod actually chose his target very wisely. This is James, son of Zebedee. He was a giant in the early church. Alongside Peter and his brother John, this James was in Christ's inner circle of three. Peter, James, and John were with Jesus at very special moments in his life. At the transfiguration, when Jesus performed a resurrection, when, when Christ was in the garden praying the night before he was killed, these three men were all there. So you better believe it, when the Christian movement is just about 10 years old, people went to James to ask him questions. What was Jesus like? What did he say? What did he do? They went to James for an insider's perspective. And so you can imagine, if you're an early Christian who believes that Jesus is the Messiah, how devastating this is. I mean, if you count Judas, we already have two of the 12 apostles dead. There's only 10 left. And then it somehow gets worse because Peter is arrested. And this is not just an act of intimidation. You need to know the implications of this. After arresting Peter, Herod puts him in prison, 
handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. And look at this last line. It says, Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Okay, you need to know the implications of this, what Herod is up to. We're only a few years removed from Jesus experiencing all the same things. Remember, less than a decade before these events, Jesus is arrested, seized in the middle of the night, right during Passover. He's put up on trumped-up charges, and then guess what? He is put out on a public trial, and what happens to him? He's executed. Herod is using the same exact playbook against Peter. Peter is seized during Passover, and he wants to put him out in this public trial where the mob, guess what they're going to ask? They're going to ask for Peter's head. And so the church, at this point, they don't have any legal recourse. They can't get an army of lawyers to help them out. All they can do is pray. We read in verse 5, Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Try and for a second just imagine what this was like. They're saying, please, Lord, not another. I mean, losing James was, was bad enough. We can't lose Peter now. This story in chapter 12 just begins with such devastation and pain. And it seems like, from a human perspective, man, this, this story is over. We know how it's going to end. But the author of the book of Acts doesn't stop there. If you look in verse 6 in your Bibles, Luke writes, The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries standing guard at the entrance. I just want to pause right here. Do you think they have this fisherman guarded enough? I mean, don't skip over these details. This is 16 bodyguards for one man. He's not even alone in his cell. He's sleeping in this Roman bodyguard sandwich. You can imagine each wrist handcuffed to, to both of the soldiers. Herod's message is very clear. Peter, you're not getting out of prison. And honestly, I think of all the devastating things that happen, happen in this chapter, this is the first time you should smile. Because you have to wonder, why so nervous, Herod? I mean, this seems like a bit of overkill. Are you worried that maybe Peter has some sort of access to power beyond your control? I mean, let's just be honest, Herod. Are, are you worried that this guy is going to be able to overpower not one squadron, not two squadrons, not three squadrons? Oh, four squadrons will do it. And the answer is, of course, Herod has very good reason to be worried because less than 10 years ago, before the events of this chapter, the Ro there were Roman soldiers who were guarding some precious cargo named Jesus of Nazareth. And guess what? That got out of their hands too. And so this time, Herod is beefing up security. We're not letting Peter go. We saw what happened last time with Jesus. We thought we, we had his body protected, and, we, and he was locked away in a tomb. But this time, we're killing Peter, and we're keeping the body. All of Herod's concerns are merited because this happens. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. 
I just want to say, we've got to pause right here. The night before his probable execution, Peter is sleeping so soundly that an angel has to punch him in the gut to wake him up. Think about that. This guy knows, oh, this, this is exactly what happened to Jesus just 10 years ago. Now it's happening to me. And he, I mean, he's passed out. Peter has clearly accepted his death. So the angel has to give him instructions. I just think this whole section is hilarious. The angel says to him, hey, you got you to put on your clothes, Peter. Like, get, get your act together. You got you to wrap your cloak around you and follow me and let me lead you out by hands out of this prison. But this, honestly, this is my favorite part of the story. Peter has no idea. Read these verses on the screen. Peter has no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening he thought he was seeing a vision. The guy experiencing the miracle doesn't believe it's occurring. And, and I don't think we should tease him too much because, you know, only a short time before this, Peter had a vision and it was very symbolic. We talked about that on our timeline. We can forgive Peter for thinking this is a vision, but it's just hilarious to imagine. Peter is thinking the entire time, man, I wonder what this vision means. I mean, these chains are falling off my hands. How symbolic, right? They pass the first and second guards in verse 10. They come to this iron gate leading to the city of Jerusalem, and it opens for them by itself. And he thinks, I wonder what this vision means. And he keeps going, and they walk the length of one street, and, and suddenly the angel leaves him. And he's looking around, and he's waiting for an explanation for what this vision means, and he realizes this is an a vision, it's a miracle. I just love verse 11, and Peter comes to himself. Well, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me. Just picture it. Peter is like tugging on his beard and slapping his face and realizing my body is actually outside of the prison, not inside the prison. This is great news. Except for the fact that now Peter has broken out of jail. And he's in the streets of Jerusalem in the middle of the night, and he needs shelter really fast because if the guards in the prison find out, they will hunt him down. So he goes to the nearest place that he think, thinks would be a shelter for him. When this dawns on him, he goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying just so happens that Peter shows up to the prayer meeting for Peter. Would it surprise us in the least if one item on the prayer list was, Lord, please save Peter. God, we don't know how you could do it, but please save our leader. And at the same time, Peter is knocking at the outer entrance. And this servant, sweet, sweet Rhoda, right, comes to answer the door she somehow, I guess she hears Peter saying, hey, it's me, it's Peter, it's Peter. And she recognizes his voice, and she's so thrilled, she's so overjoyed, she runs away. And Peter is still knocking, like, please, let me, let me inside. And she exclaims to the whole group, and she, you know, she interrupts the prayer service and says, guys, Peter is at the door. I love this. Peter got out of prison more easily than he can get into a house of prayer. I mean, y'all, he is woken up by an angel in a cell without either of these two buff Roman bodyguards 
you know, they just keep snoozing. They, they don't wake up. The angel supernaturally unlocks this massive iron prison door. Peter is right outside of the house where Christians are praying for him, and he can't get in. Now, look, I know some of us right now are having a hard time believing what's happening. You know, this, this sounds like the stuff of legend, the stuff of myth. Maybe ancient people used to believe in this kind of thing, but we're enlightened. We have science. We know that miracles don't happen. But it actually turns out that for all of human history, guess what? It's hard to believe in miracles. What is the first thing they say? You're out of your mind. Poor Rhoda. Peter's at the door. Peter's at the door. You're crazy, Rhoda. There's no way Peter is outside. He's in custody. He can't just walk out of maximum security prison, Rhoda. And they're right. That's not what happens naturally. It happens supernaturally. The irony is that they come up with an alternative explanation. It can't be a miracle. It must be his guardian angel, they say. I think this is hilarious because from the very beginning, Christians who, whose faith has a miracle at its center have a really hard time believing in miracles. Right? Think about the, the Sunday morning of Easter. Jesus is raised from the dead. He appears to a woman named Mary Magdalene. She recognizes his voice. She goes to tw tell the other 11 apostles, and what's their response? Well, they don't believe her because their, her words seem to them like nonsense. Christians have had to be convinced of miracles from the very beginning. Just because they're ancient doesn't mean they're superstitious or naive. They don't believe at first. And now another woman recognizes Peter's voice this time. She tells the church about the miracle, and guess what? Rhoda is not believed just like Mary Magdalene was not believed. Because it's always been difficult, and we always want to come up with alternative explanations. And then, y'all, this is my new favorite verse in the Bible. This whole time where they're speculating, Peter is still knocking. Please let me in. I just got out of jail. It would be nice to have somewhere to stay for a while. Peter's thinking, sure, you know, Jesus said, knock and the door shall be open to you, but apparently not. He's been doing this for minutes now. Well, finally, 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 they get up to see what Rhoda is talking about. They open the door. They see Peter. And because they're ancient people, they, they believe it immediately. No, no, no. They are astonished. Apparently, they get so loud, Peter has to motion his hand to them to say, be quiet. I need to tell you what just happened to me. And I love what he says. He described how the Lord, Jesus, brought him out of prison. In the morning, we read that there is no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. And after Herod made a search for Peter and didn't find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered their execution. You might think that's the end of the story, but Luke isn't done just yet. It's not just the guards who were punished. On an appointed day in 44 AD, Herod sits on his throne. He delivers an address to the people, and they shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. And immediately, 
Because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he is eaten by worms and dies. But the word of God, unlike Herod, continued to spread and flourish. Okay, look at this whole timeline of this story. Begins with Herod coming to power. He kills James, he persecutes Christians, and he arrests Peter. And I bet that the church at this time was thinking it can only get worse from here. But then an angel visits, miracles occur, and Peter is freed. And the story ends with divine justice against the oppressors and persecutors. Y'all, I wanted to spend time on every single verse in this chapter because it shows us what Christ is up to in our midst. 2,000 years ago, after Jesus was raised from the dead, he continued to perform miracles. He frees Peter from prison. These trained Roman guards are fast asleep while the chains are unlocked. Bolted prison doors swing open, an evil oppressor named Herod dies without any clear medical reason. You may think miracles are unbelievable, but I want you to consider this from a, a Christian's perspective. The center of our faith is the resurrection of Jesus. If that's true, it's like a first domino that hits all of the other ones down. Because if he defeated death, if he is alive today in heaven, there is no reason why miracles of lesser power couldn't happen. I'm positive that if he can defeat death, he can open a few doors and unlock a few chains. Which is why today's sermon is summarized this way. Because he lives, we see miracles. This week, I actually texted a few Christians my age, about half a dozen friends, a very unofficial survey, and I just asked them, have you ever seen a miracle? Yes or no, you don't have to explain the story, just let me know. I had three friends text back, nope, never seen anything supernatural happen. I had one friend who said yes, and then he did not give me any story. I was so mad. I was like, tell, tell me this story, what happened? But he just said yes. And then another friend texted me. She said, for a while I worked in a rehab facility and one of my patients fell and had a severe injury to her spine at the top of her neck. If anybody else, if this had happened to anybody else, it should have paralyzed her from the neck down. But within days she was moving her arms, she was moving her legs, and eventually she walked. And this is a quote from my friend's text. So casually she goes, there was no explanation for how that was possible. And then she said, good luck with your survey. I don't know why some Christians get to experience or see miracles, and I don't know why other Christians don't. This passage doesn't tell us why God does not save James, but does save Peter. I can only tell you that God permits Christians as faithful as James to suffer and die, and God permits Christians as faithful as Peter to experience miracles. Which means that if you want a miracle to happen, you can pray for a miracle. 
you can say to our Lord, Jesus, I don't know how it could happen, but I, I want you to heal me. I want you to heal my mom's cancer. I want you to heal my dad's diagnosis. I want you to rescue me from this situation that I can't get out of. And Jesus is perfectly free to say yes. I don't know why he says yes when he does. I don't know why he says no when he does. But yes is always an option for Jesus. Yes is in his power. But if we have learned anything from this story... If we pray for a miracle, we better watch at the door and wait for a knock. Because the answer to our prayers can be knocking. I don't want to keep a miracle outside of our church doors because we don't think it can happen. And if someone comes to us saying, well, the very thing you're asking for is waiting outside, I don't want to say you're out of your mind. That could never happen. Because Jesus lives, we see miracles. We are free to pray for supernatural intervention in our world. And Christ is free and is able to say yes. But if he says yes, we need to be like Rhoda. Not keeping Peter out, but immediately responding and opening the door to him and believing that our God can do it. Let's pray. Father, we know that you are powerful. We confess each week that you are the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And we know that 2,000 years ago, you raised Jesus from the dead. And if Jesus is alive today, then he is perfectly free to say yes. So, Father, if there are any miracles on the hearts and minds of people here today, I ask that you would give us strength to pray for them. Not demanding miracles. Not expecting you to say yes, but openly offering these prayers for your supernatural power. And Lord, if you say yes, I pray that you give us the courage of Peter to tell of how you deliver us. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.